Spirit power go out on us, do we? So uh, we are at our last uh, message of Hoosier One, and um, boy, I have been, frankly, enjoying praying for your ones, the names that you've been giving uh, given me, and there's, it's not too late if there's someone you want to pray for, uh, to for you to share the gospel with uh, before Easter or even after that, or to bring them here uh, to our Easter gathering. Uh, there's still cards around on the chairs and, and in the back and so forth. And if you are thinking specifically about a, looking for the card here, there we go, a um, just something to hand someone for that invitation. Uh, we also have these cards back there as well. It has our address on the bottom, and you could write a little note on the back as well. So just some things to maybe kind of make it a little bit easier and, and help them be able to find us. It was interesting as we did all our Lenten gatherings how many people don't know where churches are in this area. And so where is this church? Where is that church? And so uh, I said, let's get our address on it so that people know. Well, we're going to look at a couple different things today. Actually, we're going to look at some combos, you know, things that go together, things that we think of together. And uh, I mean, there are things like ham and eggs, right? They just go together Uh, or, you know, inhaling, exhaling, right? It's like, which is more important? Well, they both are. Uh, or, or the idea of burger and fries, right? There are things that, that just go together. So we're going to see two combos today uh, as we finish up. And the first one is, I'll tell you what they are. The first combo is salt and light. And the second one is, is grace and truth. And I got to tell you, I was, I mean, when I say agonizing, I wasn't you know, sweating drops of blood or anything, but it's really having a hard time deciding which one of those combos to, to talk and bring to you today is this last message of this series before Easter. And God says, why don't you do both? And I said, okay. And so let's look at the first one, and it's in Matthew chapter 5. So salt and light. First of all, let's deal with salt, all right? So this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I've heard lots of messages on this particular verse, and people start talking about the nature of salt, what salt is used for. It, it, I, by the way, I always thought it interesting. Salt, if, you, if you're into chemistry, it's sodium chloride. Uh, and, but if you think about it as well, sodium and chlorine are both toxic to, to us. You shouldn't, don't ever swallow sodium or chlorine. Uh, but you put them together and they make salt and it's perfectly safe. I thought that's just like God to take something dangerous and make it safe for us. But there, there are lots of different ways to, I guess, unpack or define this metaphor that Jesus is using. You are the salt of the earth. It's a metaphor. And However, people say, well, salt is often used as a preservative. So we're to be, act as a preservative in our culture. Uh, there's another thing salt does, and the big word is called a desiccant, which means it sucks moisture out of things. Uh, and even the ancient Egyptians, when they would mummify someone, they would, before they wrapped them up, they put salt on them and it would suck all the moisture out of their bodies before they wrapped them as a mummy. Uh, if you ever 
put salt on a snail or a slug and you see all the, you're sucking all the moisture out of its body. If, if slugs could scream, they'd be screaming in utter agony uh, as all the moisture is leaving their body. Uh, it's also used as a cleanser or defend, disinfectant, so we're to act as a cleanser. Now, did Jesus mean all of these aspects of salt when he gave us this, uh, this passage, this message? I don't think so, because he defines what he means. He's saying, he talks about taste. We taste salt. God gave us, on our tongues, receptors that could specifically identify things that are salty or not salty enough. Like you go and you order eggs, ham and eggs at a restaurant, and they just, they seem bland. Where's the salt? Put some salt on it. We have the ability to uh, define that in our mouths. Salt or the lack of salt is notice. It's a taste. So what he's referring to in this really couple sentences here, in terms of what, what does he mean by salt, he's talking about its taste. And so that's what I think we should focus on. Now, he says, if salt should lose its taste, salt doesn't expire. So if you, if you go home and you see an expiration date on your, your container of salt, oh, it's way past, it's still good. Now, it might have gotten damaged or something like that or, or moisture gotten in there or other things. So uh, I've heard people say, well, salt over time will lose its saltiness. It really doesn't. So, but that's not what Jesus said. He did not say when it becomes tasteless. He said if, if it does. Salt has one job, be salty. I mean, that's it. That's what you expect. So what he's saying is, if salt doesn't have saltiness, what good is it? Throw it away. I mean, you, you buy salt because you need saltiness. If you don't have it, if, if it happens to lose that characteristic, it's worthless. So he's not saying, again, when it loses, it doesn't ever lose it. But if it did, it's just garbage. Throw it away. There's no sense for it. Uh, otherwise, salt has, as I said, one job. It's garbage. There's that expression, someone who is worth their salt, meaning their salary. In fact, the the, the Latin term where we get the word salary comes from the, the word salt itself. Uh, it, it has value just because it's salty. It is the nature of salt. This is profound. Write this down. It is the nature of salt to be salty. You got that? That's what salt does. That's what it do. So what is, he, what is Jesus saying here? Listen, he says, if you don't reflect me, if you don't reflect as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, you got one job. Be like Jesus. Like salt is salty, be like Jesus. If you're not, well, what good is that? What good is that? If we don't reflect Christ, what good are we? Later in the chapter, he's even going to say, look, you have to be holy as God is holy. It's actually the last verse of the chapter. So if we don't reflect him, what good are we? Well, then he goes on and talks about light. Very next passage, look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all those in the house. 
in the same way, let your light, this is the light of mine. Oh, sorry. Uh, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So similar idea. Like salt has a nature to be salty, light has a nature too. To not just be seen, but to reveal. If you're walking, if you're like, like me last night, trying to walk through my dark house, if you hit your baby toe on something and you think, oh, that was a chair, and then you turn the light on, it reveals the truth, oh, it was actually a table or a bookcase. Light reveals. It's the late nature of light to reveal things, to shine. And he says, to do that before men. He says, what's the point of a light if you can't see it, if it's not doing its job and shining it? If we turn the lights on here at, at nighttime and, and no light came out, what's its point? As Again, looking last night with my flashlight going around the house and I, I put my flashlight upside down on a, on a counter and you couldn't see it anymore. Like, well, why, why turn the thing on in the first place? That's Jesus' point. So he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. But he goes on a little bit more and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So as God is in our lives, as we are walking with him and, and becoming more and more intimate with him, then people should be able to see that like a light. And specifically, I think it's when we encounter him as we deal with our own sin, we can, I guess, the, kind of the old, the old revival days, you would say, give testimony of, hey, God saved me from this behavior or this attitude. I was greedy or I was selfish, and God saved me from that. You're letting your light shine in such a way that people say, how did, how did you do that? Well, it was the Lord shine in such a way that it brings glory to God. Uh, early we read Psalm 51 where David is confessing his sin and near the end of Psalm 51 he says, when, when God you've cleansed me, then I will teach sinners your ways. It's a natural progression to, uh, to tell what God has done in our lives. So what exactly is salt and light? And I'm going to make a few, I guess, assumptions here about that. One I already mentioned, it's telling people what the Lord has been doing or has done in your life and in your heart. He's delivered me from, and fill in the blank. Another, another assumption we could say is the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. You know what the world really has no hope of seeing themselves? Love joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. They're crying out for them. Every time there's another act of violence, people say, why are people so mean? Because they're sinful. I mean, that's a simple answer. But they don't have any change in their life and in their heart. They have to know the Lord. And when we are displaying those qualities, the one says, where did you get that? Where did you get love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness? Uh, other things that the world could see as, a, as light and salt is a giving heart or listening ears. And even the idea of opening your mouth to, to help someone and, and counsel them. 
We model Jesus. It's what a disciple of Jesus does. If I'm a disciple of Jesus, then I am following my leader and doing what he does. That's being salt and light. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something here a little bit dangerous in terms of Bible interpretation because I do want to look at grace and truth. And so we're actually going to jump to another book because you, you say, well, how... How do we do that? How do we be salt and light? And so we're going to look at the book of John. And I think they do go together. But they're not, it's just I'm uncomfortable because they're not directly connected within the same author or the same passage. But follow me with this. How are we to be salty? How are we to spread light? We do that with grace and truth. Well, what does that mean? This is our second couplet. John chapter 1, verses 14 and 18. And the Word became flesh. Now, when John 1 uses the term Word, the word Word, it's, he's talking about Jesus all the way from the very first verse. So when Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was uh, he of whom I said, here comes one after, uh, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. What's, what comes through Jesus? Grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is in the, at the Father's side. He has made him known. So when Jesus came and walked among us as a man in the flesh, he did so with grace and truth. He revealed God in this way. So what does it mean from a New Testament sense to, to, to bring grace? Well, we are saved through grace, by grace through faith. Grace is a free gift of God. It is by his own graciousness. Without grace, we have no hope. We, we have no hope at all to, to be saved, to come to the Lord, to have a new nature. We have no hope. It's not given because we deserve it. It's not given for that at all. In fact, we're enemies of God, and yet he still gave it. We're objects of his wrath, and he gave grace. It's all on God that we get grace. It is a free gift from him. It's given because we don't have any hope otherwise. And this is the way Jesus came. He came to bring hope. He came to tell people, look, everyone sins. You all have sin. I am coming to tell you some good news. It's kind of like one of the reasons I really like that three-circle illustration we use because it starts with the Lord and the next part is sin, the bad news, and then it leads to our brokenness. And then finally it says, here's the answer. By grace, you can become and know the Lord. He offers a solution. But grace is only one side of the equation of how Jesus came. What does he mean by truth? You know, as Pilate famously say, what is truth? Well, Here's some truth that's not easy to hear. If you were with us last week, we learned you're doomed to hell. And if you say, ooh, I want to hear that message, sorry, the power went out and it's gone forever. 
It's not there anymore. But that was the message, is there is a hell. It is real. If you die without Jesus, that's where you're going. Bad, bad news. That is the truth. We have fallen short of God's standard. We die. In the book of Romans, the first three chapters are all about truth of our sin and how bad we are. And some people might be worse than others, but everyone is. No one has done good. No one at all. We've all fallen away from the Lord. If this part is not told, if we kind of, well, we don't want to talk about that. That's, that's icky. If there's no sin, then why did Jesus die? Right? If there's nothing to worry about, then there's nothing to worry about. See, it's because of this truth, hard truth, that we need grace. See how they go together? What do they mean for us? Again, they're, it's, it's like inhaling and exhaling. Which is more important? They both are. Now, some of the, some of the scholars I looked at and books I looked at um, made a big deal. They said, well, grace comes first so that we lead with grace. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, you have to use one of them first, don't you? Right? So, so I think it's a bit presumptuous to say you lead with grace. They're not ors. It's not grace or truth. It's grace and truth. They go together. In another example, what's more important, your left leg or your right leg? Well, you need both of them. They go together. They're linked that closely together. They are presented as a set like ham and eggs. One has to be mentioned first. And it doesn't also mean, always mean just because something is mentioned first in a list does not mean it's always the most important. Look at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where Paul's, you know that poem about love, love is patient, love is kind. And he, he ends that saying, um, what is it? Um, but abide in these faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. Well, love's there listed last. But it clarifies it's the most important of the three. So the order is not, my point is the order is not necessarily saying one is more important than the other. They both are. So we preach truth. As I said earlier, mankind is sinful. It's the bad news. We are destined to be separated from God forever. Children of wrath. We can earn no favor with God. And by the way, sin is sin regardless of what the world says regardless of how they redefine things and try to justify themselves. Now, it's true that consequences of some sins might be worse than others here on earth. There's, there's a difference between, the, again, the natural consequences of the gossip and the liar versus the murderer and the molester. But don't misunderstand this. Gossips and liars are just as damned to hell as murderers and molesters are. It's all the same in that sense. People need to hear the truth even though they will not feel maybe good about themselves for a little bit. So we preach truth. And by preach, I don't mean like what I'm doing at this moment. It's what we as believers are supposed to be proclaiming in the world. We also preach grace. 
And here's the, the thing we have to remember is we all come from that same need. So we can't be looking down on our nose or wagging a finger at anyone because we need it too. So while we preach truth, we do it in a spirit of grace. When someone comes through our door and they don't know the Lord, and maybe we know something about them, we know something about their lifestyle or the sin that they're practicing, they're welcome here. They are. They should be. We're supposed to dine with tax collectors and sinners. They are our fellow humans in need of grace as we are. So we don't, we don't justify their sin. We don't say, oh, it's okay. We don't say things like, uh, oh, it's nice that you were born that way. Nor do we avoid the truth. And even a new believer in the Lord, if someone says, I'm going to repent and put my faith in Jesus, give them some time for God to reveal those things. And, and indeed, every believer is going through that same process as God reveals things in our life and in our heart. And we say, oh, I need to, I need to give that up too. And so, and there, and there may be times for, again, a new believer, especially if we're practicing good discipleship, that they, uh, we have a, hey, let's have a chat. I'm concerned about something with you. That's okay. But uh, we, we don't justify our sin. Here's a quote uh, by J.D. Greer. He says, were Jesus not fully truthful, he wouldn't have been gracious. In other words, he would have been lying to them, but he had to be truthful. He wouldn't have been gracious. We, were he not fully gracious, he wouldn't have been truthful. See, they go together. Churches tend to gravitate toward the grace side or the truth side. What does that look like? Um, churches that gravitate toward the, the grace side or ultra grace side, they never call sin, sin. I remember once I was uh, uh, helping with a series of messages and uh, one particular pastor had to uh, preach on sin. And he stood up and frankly said, I don't like talking about this, so let me talk about something else. It's part of it. It's the truth. But he, he want, he, there was this feel-good mentality. Everyone is accepted. And everyone, we're always seeking to avoid some kind of offense. We don't want people to get mad at us uh, or that idea, well, I'm made this way and therefore I'm good. It's like, well, it just be, you know, we're made, we're, we're born sinners too. It doesn't mean that it's good. Uh, these, these churches that are, again, ultra grace-sided tend to just abhor anything or the accusation that might call them judgmental. They don't want that. And, and so the problem with that is why it sounds nice, it sounds like a nice place to be, there's no healing for sin because, well, they've taken sin out of it. But you know, I've been at the other churches too where they emphasize truth. These ultra-truth churches. These are cold, no understanding, no compassion. You know, when someone's struggling with a particular sin, and it, and, and it is a sin, and there's no empathy, there's no understanding that this new believer is 
probably breaking generational chains that his great-grandfather and his grandfather and his father all did. But these ultra-truth churches, boy, you can bear straight no. And there's no grace. There's no patience with one another. Tend to be perfectionists. Tend to be works-oriented. By the way, if you look at these two ultra-grace, ultra-truth churches, you can find them in Revelations chapters 2 and 3. We did a series on the letters to the churches. Just read through those. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a grace church. That's a truth-only church. Not all of them. Some of them are good. Both extremes, and this, this is more of an observation. My next uh, statement here is more of an observation that I have. Um, but what I've noticed is that both of these churches, the, the extreme grace, extreme truth churches, tend to stress political alignment more than focusing on Jesus. So a, a particular political view will become their goal not Christ, on both sides. And so they, rather they stress a, uh, a, a, a political goal rather than, look, here's Jesus. Here's him. He's, he is real. Um, or, so they, but they both do that. So what? So what do we do about this? Are we, if we are saltless or hide our light, what's the point? Uh, you know, the world already misunderstands church people and Christians. They already do that. We've gotten bad press. There's tons of propaganda out there. So our job is to change that paradigm. We don't want to show evidence that agrees with their bias. So they think we're narrow-minded and bigoted and so forth. Well, then we shouldn't be that way, right? Let me give you an example of shifting that paradigm. In the 1970s, there was a lot of books. In fact, I don't even know if you could still get them. They, they may be out of print. But they were called Polak jokes, Polish jokes. I've heard them all. I told a bunch of them. Being, again, descended from Polish grandparents. You know, like how many poles does it take to change a light bulb? Five, one to hold the bulb, and four to spin the ladder. You know, and, and, and again, why the poles were picked on, I don't know. But they're not stupid. They're no more stupid or smart than any other people group. But I remember people thinking and coming to me and says, oh, you're, aren't, aren't Polish people kind of dumb? I said, No. What made you, well, there's all those Polish jokes. Oh, but, but it's not true. I mean, we have Copernicus. We had uh, Madame Curie, the first person to get two Nobel Prizes, first woman to get any Nobel Prize, and two, first person to get two in different areas. Got to be pretty smart. Poland today, by the way, is leading Europe economically and growth and in, in just ever since they broke free of the Soviet Union, they've been, it's a great vacation spot, by the way. So you know what? No one tells Pollock jokes anymore because that paradigm's changed. 
Now, it's taken some time. It's taken some people to realize, ah, you know what, those, those really aren't that cool to do. So we have to be able to change the world's paradigm. We have to show how their misrepresentations are wrong instead of confirming the truth. So we present Jesus. How? With grace and truth. Both are required. These ideas of grace and truth are not at loggerheads. They're not in opposition. They rather complement each other. When, when we see them together, they really complement God's grace and truth. And uh, there's a lot of talk, and I've, been, and I've been part of it too, about the idea of changing culture or seeking God for revival. It, it doesn't start with something in the world. We have to remember, the world is lost. The world is object of wrath. Now, the Spirit of God can do whatever He wants to, but it starts really with God's church. Being salt and light with grace and truth. We must turn to the Lord. Culture is corrupt. It's not going to do anything good. So let's not get all upset when it doesn't. We can, we can try to force people to do that, but, you know, they're still not going to. I was driving down, going to my house, double yellow lines. It's illegal, isn't it, to pass someone on double yellow lines? Well, you would think there are laws against that. Well, guess what? This got right around me. And if you know me, I don't drive slow. I mean, I push the edge pretty hard. So I'm not a slow driver. So this law didn't change that person's behavior. They still did it. The, world's not, the world doesn't want to reform itself. But we are called to do that. We have a new nature. We offer them Jesus. Revival starts in church. And I don't mean a Sunday morning meeting. I mean within a group of people. It's us saying, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. Lord Jesus, I, I repent of these secret sins, these things that I've been hiding. I, I, I want to walk with you closer and better and be dedicated to you, to set an example for my spouse, for my kids, and to be salt and light for one another in my community and do so with grace and truth. We tell the truth with grace. A couple of things we could pray about today as we uh, remember here in our uh, pause and pray time. First of all, let's just spend some time praising Jesus. He came with us with grace and truth. He didn't hide the bad news for us, but rather he brought grace for us. And that then he says, you are salt and light. You, y'all are salt and light. That's quite an honor. That's a to me, that's a fodder for thankfulness. And maybe there's some situation or person where you think, you know, I will be salt and light too, fill in the blank, by some other act. So let's spend some time praying uh, with these praises and requests. Uh, and especially thinking as we're going into Easter next week and thinking about our one or your many, as the case may be, of who we're, we, we hope to spread the gospel to. Let's pray. Pray out loud as you like, and I'll close this.
Mm-hmm. 